0: So we're going to talk about this hymn, and I hope you hearken to every word. Yes, I use the word hearken, and I think that, Blake, I think Art needs to speak for, I was going to say, where is, where, is, where is Art? Art, you need to speak for thyself, brother. <laughs> Some of us do still use. Art knows that the first line of that wonderful Christmas hymn we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that's not actually the original line. The original was, Hark all the welkin rings. Do you know what welkin means? I didn't either. I had to look it up in the dictionary. It means the heavens. So the original line was actually, Hark. The heavens are ringing. But the author had a friend named George Whitfield, a preacher, famous preacher, and he said, you know, maybe the Welkin needs to go. Let's try Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So even in this 18th century Advent hymn, there's been a little updating of language. And I want us to reflect on the substance of this hymn, because it is rich with gospel. And it helps to understand it, to know something about the author, the man who wrote it, a remarkable man by the name of Charles Wesley. I spoke last week about his older brother, John, the great evangelist. But Charles Wesley was every bit the great man that his older brother was. Charles was the 18th son, or rather the sixth son, the 18th child of his mother, Susanna Wesley. His father was Samuel Wesley, an Anglican priest and pastor in Epworth, England. There were 19 children born to Susanna. That'll turn you to prayer. (laughs) 19 children, sadly, Only 10 made it to adulthood. That was the way of life in the 18th century. But all her children were homeschooled by Susanna herself. Can you imagine trying to homeschool all those children? Must have been chaos. Or maybe not. She was a strict disciplinarian. You know, the Bible has that proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child. Does that come from the Bible? Look it up. She had a rod, a literal rod that she would use with her kids when they got out of line. But she was a woman of prayer. She was a good woman, a godly woman. There were strict times. She would have her times of prayer every day. She was disciplined about having her times of prayer. But the only way she could get time was to take the outer layer of her skirt and pull it back up over her head like a tent And all the kids knew that when mama had her tent over her head, they had better leave her alone or they were going to get the rod. She knew Greek. She knew Latin um, fluently, and she taught her children both. She was a remarkable lady, and her husband was a remarkable man. Charles Wesley then grew up in a very religious home, and he knew all the hymns of the church. He knew the scriptures. He knew the doctrines of the church. So he was a religious young man. Now, it's true, when he went to Oxford, there was a period of time when he sort of took it all for granted. But after he'd been at Oxford a year or two, He recovered the seriousness of his faith, and he gathered some friends around him, and they decided they were going to do everything they could to live godly lives for Jesus Christ. They formed a club. They called it the Holy Club. Now, that wasn't because they thought they were holy, but they were striving to be holy, and they were so disciplined. They had set times that they would arise in the morning when they would pray, and then they would have set times during the day when they would break for prayer as well. They would fast two days each week. They would go out and serve the poor every week. They would go to the prisons and preach the gospel every week. They were so methodical about the way they sought godliness that people around them began to mock them as Methodists. And so Charles Wesley was the first Methodist. Back then, if you were called a Methodist, that was, meant you were a fanatic. Methodists were fanatics. Fanatics were often Methodists, and that's what Charles Wesley was. He was so very religious and upright and orthodox and earnest, he and his brother John were both ordained to be Anglican priests, and they both felt called of God to go as missionaries to Georgia, when it was still a colony, in order to minister not just to the colonists, but to win Native Americans to Jesus Christ. But when they got to Georgia, it wasn't what they expected at all. Not at all. Life was so hard, and the people themselves were hard. There were some people of low character that slandered them and even threatened them. It wasn't long before Charles was totally discouraged, depressed, and before the year was out, he got on a ship and he was sailing back to England. Just a few months later, his brother John did the same. They were both terribly discouraged. And John spoke for both of them when he said, I went to Georgia to convert the Indians. But oh, who will convert me? Because it was while they were on the mission field that they began to realize that their religion wasn't all that. They were very religious, but but they were missing something. They saw a group called the Moravians, John saw them on ship and he was struck by the peace that they had as they sung hymns even as a violent storm was raging, seemingly putting the ship in danger of being sung. They sang, they prayed, they feared not at all. And John saw that and he realized they had something that he didn't have. Charles saw the same thing and began to meet with some of the Moravians and ask them questions. What they told Charles and John was that it's not just a matter of what you believe, and it certainly isn't what you do. Christianity is about life in your soul. It's a matter of the heart. It has to be something real within you. You must experience a new birth. Without that new birth, if you are not born again, You have the semblance of Christianity, but you don't have the real thing. On Pentecost Sunday, 1738, recovering from an illness, still struggling with depression, Charles Wesley called out to Jesus Christ and gave his life completely to him And he says, by his own testimony, the light filled him and he was saved. He knew he was saved. He was born again. He knew he was born again. He had been transformed. Three days later, his brother John was also converted to Christ. He sought conversion for the Indians, he said, but who will convert me? Jesus Christ converted him. And as I told you last week, He testified that it came in a moment when he felt his heart strangely warmed. That's what is being depicted in this portrait I show you of Charles Wesley. You see one hand is on the Bible. The other one is over his heart. The artist is trying to convey that what Charles discovered was heart religion. That's what changed everything for him. On that day, he wrote his first hymn, and then for 50 years, he wrote nearly three hymns a week, 50 years, three hymns a week. He is incomparably the greatest hymn writer in the history of the church, and churches sing his hymns even today. As we were singing, I thought of that, and I thought, you know, I might ask Art, he's a good songwriter, I might ask Art to write three songs for next Sunday. (laughs) And after he's done that, I'm going to say, Art, could you do three more for the next Sunday? And how about three more after that, and three more after that? Three a week for 50 years. He's converted on Pentecost, and before that first Christmas, we don't know exactly when, but sometime in the first few months of this new experience of Jesus Christ, his heart still aglow with this new faith, this new life that's come into him. He wrote what he called a Christmas hymn. The first line was, "'Hark, all the Welkin rings.'" it becomes, hark, the herald angels sing. The first line has been changed, but the substance of the hymn is the same. And so when we sing that hymn, we are giving expression to the truths that gripped Charles Wesley's heart way back in 1738. He was alive to them in a way he had never been before. He'd gone past simply a religious life to an experience of God in Jesus Christ. And so we see themes here that bring life to anyone who believes them. So as we sing the hymn, it begins with the angels singing, and that makes you think about Luke's account of the angels singing and the, the shepherds hearing. But as you go through the rest of the hymn, you keep coming across themes that are prominent in the gospel of John. For example, he talks about this extraordinary, mysterious reality of the incarnation. Remember these words? We just sang them. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel brings us back to Matthew's gospel, but this is, Explicit talk about incarnation, that reminds us of the Gospel of John. John speaks of the Word or the Lagos. The Lagos that is with God and perfectly expresses God. But at the same time, he says mysteriously, the Lagos who is God. There's no separation between the Lagos and God. God. The church father, Justin Martyr, put it this way. You have this flame, a torch with a flame, who is God. And the Lagos, separated from God, bears the same fire. It's one fire. And the God is not diminished as the fire is now taking on human flesh. The word of God the logos of God in John 1:14 it says the word became flesh that's what incarnation means it means in fleshment god without ceasing to be god takes on human flesh and is revealed in the very flesh of the son Jesus Christ now that's not the same thing as God indwelling Jesus. God indwells us if we have faith. We're talking about God becoming the very flesh of Jesus. A lot of times people think, oh, all religions think that, or many religions believe that, the, that God has come in some sort of human form. But actually, this is a new idea introduced in the world by Christianity. You have myths about God's appearing as human beings or even as animals. But no one ever seriously suggested that a living flesh and blood human being was somehow God. And yet that's exactly what we're claiming about Jesus Christ. That in the very flesh of Jesus Christ, you have the Godhead veiled. Veiled because we don't see all God's glory in this flesh. And yet we do see something of God's glory in the holiness of Jesus, in the miracles that he performs, in the grace that he conveys, in his going to the cross and rising from the dead. We do see that. But Jesus comes in flesh, and so God is with us. And that's why, that's why we focus on Jesus. That's why it's all about Jesus it's not that we deny that there is truth and there is goodness throughout the world. We do accept that, but, but compared to Jesus, I'll tell you what it's like. Several oh, weeks ago, early in the morning, I was out on our patio, and the sun was rising. And on the opposite horizon, I looked, and there was the moon. You could still make it out, barely, but you could see the moon. Now, the night before, it had been bright in the dark sky. It doesn't have light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. But there in the darkness, it lit up the landscape. But now the sun was rising. The moon was setting. You could still see it, but it was dimmed. Compared to the glory of the sun, it had no glory at all. And that's, as Christians, where we stand. There are philosophers who speak truth. There are religious teachers who speak truth. There are good people everywhere. And we don't deny the truth and the goodness, but compared to God in flesh, compared to Jesus Christ, there is no glory except in him. Everything else pales in comparison. And so, God comes in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And why does he come? He comes to save us. And that's what Charles Wesley emphasizes as you sing this hymn. Look what he says. I love this section. The first line speaks of the incarnation. Mild, he lays his glory by. And then look what he does. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them Second birth. You have born that we might not die eternal life. Born that we might be raised resurrection. Born that we might experience second birth. What I want to do is to start at the last and go backwards. Born that we might experience a second birth because that's what Charles Wesley was still inflamed by that truth he was still he was still full of the of the newness of it as he talked about the second birth where in the bible do we read about the second birth where where's it where's it where do we find that very language about a new birth in the bible where yes john chapter 3 It's there that Jesus speaks of the need for a second birth. This is the one passage in the entire New Testament that explicitly discusses at length this idea of being born again. There's no question that Charles Wesley, overwhelmed by the grace of God and and witnessing to it in this hymn, is drawing on that passage. So look what that passage says. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You and I, were born of the flesh when we come into this world. We are flesh and blood. That's all we are. And we can give birth to flesh. But that's all we can do. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Jesus says, if you're going to enter into this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom, this kingdom of life and light, you must be born a second time. You must be born of the spirit. Charles Wesley was a religious man of the flesh. He was as devout and orthodox and godly and upright and good and devoted as any human flesh could possibly be. But he was empty and defeated in the face of life because he did not know Jesus Christ. He hadn't experienced that new birth until Pentecost Sunday, 1738. And that's why he sings of it. That's why he includes it. He realized for the first time, he knew it doctrinally, but he realized for the first time truly in his life that Christ was born to give us second birth. How many people, I mean, so many people try so very hard they conform and they struggle and they pray and they serve and they attend church and they do so many things hoping to find what they, what they can of happiness and fulfillment. But there's only one way to that, and that is the new birth by the Spirit. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you can't see and you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. However, You can be born of the Spirit by turning to Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus was born that we might experience a second birth, but also that we might experience and know eternal life and be raised from the dead. Now, that's a resurrection in the end. We'll be raised literally from the dead, But it's also a reference to a spiritual resurrection that happens when we are born anew. And that too is Johannine. This this too comes from the Gospel of John. This idea of eternal life is prominent throughout the Gospel. I think of another incident in the life of Jesus. A good friend of his named Lazarus died. Jesus sets out for Bethany, his hometown. Lazarus is laying there entombed. And when Martha, the sister of Lazarus, hears that Jesus is coming, she rushes out to meet him. She's overwhelmed by her grief, and she falls at his feet. And Jesus then speaks to her the very truths that Charles Wesley wants us to sing about. Look what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Is there a death? Well, yes, but you'll live even though you die. And in fact, you won't really die at all. Because what we call death is a transition to life eternal. All who believe in me will discover eternal life. You do not need to die. Jesus was born that man no more may die. You can be raised to life. Jesus was born for that. The question is, do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. Do you believe this? In a manner of speaking, yes, Charles Wesley believed it, but he didn't really believe it. He didn't truly affirm it till that day that he personally met Jesus Christ and it changed everything.